Attention, all troops. She's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rockerless. I hail from the great state of New Jersey, where every summer my family used to embark on a trip to the Jersey Shore. Back in the 80s, this was a tradition that many families followed, spending weekends or sometimes a whole week at the shore. My family's preferred spot was Point Pleasant, and one year we rented a small cottage for a week there. What makes this special was that this particular summer was when Pac-Man became a massive hit in the United States. I was already an avid fan of arcade games with favorites like Space Invaders and I love playing pinball, but Pac-Man was different. Like Space Invaders, it would have multiple machines with huge crowds around them. When I got up there and I could put my quarter up on the bezel and wait, I would patiently do so. The moment that I started playing it, I was utterly hooked. It's very challenging to convey the excitement of playing Pac-Man for the first time, especially in today's era of complex video games. Until that point, most games were about shooting and this game was entirely different. I quickly went through my first dollar and had to rush back for another. I only got one dollar at a time and I had to beg for it because my family wanted me to spend time on the beach swimming. My grandmother though was with us on that trip and she could see how excited I was and she gave me two dollars which I used to get back and play Pac-Man. This time I decided I would try to be smart about it. I observed other players playing and noticed they had specific patterns they were doing. It was incredible. The game had only been out a short time yet people had already figured out all these intricate patterns. I watched them trying to copy it and when I got up there I burned through those two dollars trying to emulate what they had done and failing. Now I had already burned through three dollars which was a fortune for me back then and so I knew I wasn't going to get any more that day so I waited patiently. Later that day I was on the boardwalk passing by a shop that sold various items like stressed out Pepsi bottles with the sand in it, t-shirts, sand dollars, hermit crabs. It was then that I spotted a book titled How to Play Pac-Man. I couldn't believe there was a book about playing Pac-Man. I peeled off from my family and said, I'm going to be here a while. And I began reading it, absorbing information about patterns and ghost behavior. This was all way above my head. I had no idea a game could have this much depth, especially one that looked like it was just a maze game. My family decided, we'll just leave him here, meet us back at the cottage. And I stayed there for probably about three hours, reading the booklet cover to cover. Armed with my newfound knowledge, I felt confident and returned to the arcade the next morning. I did so much better and even reached one of the high scores on this board that they kept that was quickly erased because it was a daily score. And that impressed some people, at least it did in my kid brain. As the week came to an end, we returned home and I had to go without Pac-Man for a while. However, my town's candy store, which is what we called this place that sold actually cigarettes, began carrying video games, including Pac-Man. And from that point on, for the next year, all my spare money went into it. When Pac-Man was finally released for the Atari, it was a household phenomenon. Not only was I playing it, but my mother, sister, and even my grandmother got in the act. Pac-Man was a game that transcended generations. The simple and accessible maze concept appealed to everyone.
So in this episode, I'd like to delve into the Pac-Man phenomenon, covering its initial release in Japan, its journey to America, its impact on pop culture, various ports, and some other surprises along the way. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show. The story of Pac-Man began in 1977, when a talented young man named Toru Iwatani took a job at Namco Limited. Namco at the time was a Tokyo-based amusement manufacturer, and they made projection games. Shooters like those light gun games that you could see in arcades, especially older ones. I really liked those, but I was always terrible at them. At the time, he was only 22 and had no formal trainings in video games or computers. Iwatani impressed his bosses so much that they hired him on the spot and said they could find a place for him at the company. Iwatani was really interested in making pinball machines, but Namco at the time wasn't interested in getting into the pinball business. What they were interested in doing, though, is getting into something new, a brand new craze called video games. So Iwatani was teamed up with a programmer, a graphic artist, and a music composer to make games. This would become sort of a standard procedure for video game design in the future, where Iwatani is the game systems designer and everyone else helps to try to realize that vision. In 1978, his first game, GV, was introduced. This was sort of a breakout ripoff, but had a kind of pinball sort of feel to it. So maybe it was a concession they made to him at the time, since he was so interested in pinball. Paddle games, or games that you used a little paddle spinner, were very popular. And if you're trying to picture them, picture Pong or Breakout, and those were doing very well. But a new genre was on the horizon, and it would take Japan, and then eventually the world, by storm. And this was Taito's Space Invaders. Are you a fan of the Retros podcast? Do you like more retro stuff? Why not check out the Retros Patreon? Go to patreon.com slash retroist. Supporters of the show get bonus episodes, bonus tracks, bonus scans, access to the Retroist Discord, and more. Feel good about yourself and make a difference in the world. Support the Retroist. Space Invaders came out in 1978 and it changed the arcade market immediately. We shifted from shooter games with light guns to these paddle games, things that were ripoffs of Pong, to suddenly space-themed games. And Namco, of course, wanted to get in on that. And they asked Iwatani to immediately start on a clone of Space Invaders. One of the reasons, besides the fact that he's brilliant, that Iwatani is great, was that at the time, he was thinking that while Space Invaders might have been a hit, and they would probably make money creating a clone, that it was just a trend, because that's what's starting to be established, and he recognized that. And that maybe, instead of trying to imitate, they should be thinking what will be the next great thing in this burgeoning new field of technology and commerce. His thoughts were that he wanted to create a video game that didn't focus on violence or shooting. Instead, he wanted to come up with a game that would have a wider appeal, one that male and female audiences could get behind. There was, of course, a stereotype at the time that women didn't want to play violent games, which we all know is not true nowadays. 
So Iwatani started to think about what kind of games he could make, and he thought back to his childhood, to this Japanese children's story about a creature that could protect children from monsters by eating them. One of the things that Iwatani did when he could come up with a game design is he would try to use words that could aid him in his design, something to inspire. And what eventually he came out with was the Japanese word for mouth, which is a square-shaped symbol in the written language. And he thought this would provide the inspiration for the main character, but it would be rounded off. Now there's a big legend that says that the inspiration for Pac-Man came when he was eating pizza and pulled a slice out and it looks like a Pac-Man. This was not true according to Iwatani and these are his words on it. Well, it's half true. In Japanese, the character for mouth is a square shape. It's not circular like the pizza, but I decided to round it out. There was the temptation to make the Pac-Man shape less simple while I was designing this game. Someone suggested we add eyes, but we eventually discarded the idea because once we added eyes, we would want to add glasses and maybe a mustache. There would just be no end to it. Food is the other part of the basic concept. In my initial design, I had put the player in the midst of food all over the screen. As I thought about it, I realized the player wouldn't know exactly what to do. The purpose of the game would be obscure, so I created a maze and put food in it. Then, whoever played the game would have some structure by moving through the maze. So you're seeing the game come together. We have the maze, we have the main character who would be Pac-Man, we have Pac-Man eating things, now, the Japanese have a slang word, paku paku. I think I'm probably not pronouncing that right. They use that to describe the motion of the mouth opening and closing while somebody eats. The name Puckman, which is what Pac-Man would come to be known, comes from that word. So though food inspired him, and maybe pizza was one of those foods he was thinking about while creating it, the specificity of pizza being the inspiration for the Pac-Man shape is just wrong. Although, I would love to have seen Pac-Man with a mustache and glasses. I think that would have made me very happy. Iwatani rounded out the design of the game by including four monsters, or ghosts, in the game. He thought that the ghosts would add an interesting element of tension. Instead of attacking constantly, they would come at you in waves. And that was accomplished by playing with the behavior of the ghosts, which actually gave them really unique personalities. He wanted the ghosts to come at you, but he thought, well, can you actually ever turn the table on the ghosts? And he did that by including the power pellet in the maze that turned the ghosts blue. These would come to be known as energizers, and he thought this worked really well in his concept of bringing this from a children's story because in the stories he heard, this creature had the ability to gobble up monsters. In the original arcade game, they are still called monsters, but they become ghosts later on. So Iwatani is working on the design for Pac-Man, but he's still building up his design skills, working on two successors to GB. They were sort of still pinball-inspired. They were still pinball-inspired, but they had stronger gameplay elements and better visual design. So he's getting more skilled. While not as successful as the company hoped, GB helped Namco get a foothold in the new video game market, and two sequels would be released, Bombi and QDQ, both of which Iwatani worked on. So there's this new game coming out, and Namco's behind it. And they decided that Puckman, as the game would be known, sounded like a good idea, and assigned a programmer, hardware engineer, cabinet designers, and a musical composer to work on it. And development got underway in 1979. While this was going on, Namco had been working on a Space Invaders clone, and while doing so, came up with some technological breakthroughs. Their clone was able to use a true RGB display instead of the monochrome monitors that had been colored with cellophane tape. That's right, when you played a game before this, for the most part, and you saw color, it was just cellophane over black and white. Because of this breakthrough, Iwatani can now use color in his game. 
In his mind, he thought he could appeal to a wider audiences by picking colors that he thought would appeal to both men and women. So the ghosts were given pastel shades, and he could also give them expressive and colored eyes. The maze itself could be dark blue and Pac-Man a very strong yellow. Over the next year, Pac-Man would continue to evolve, and a lot of work was put into developing the behaviors of the ghosts that made it a fun game to play. As the time went on, these ghosts became even more and more unique, so much so that they were given names of their own. Instead of just having the hero Pac-Man have a name, even his villains had names. And of course, the names we came to know them as in America were Blinky, Pinky, Inky, and Clyde. If you're not familiar enough with Pac-Man, the red guy is Blinky, Pinky is obviously the pink one, the blue ghost is Inky, and the orange ghost is Clyde. They all had different behaviors, and the behaviors associated with them are Blinky is the chaser, Pinky is an ambusher, Inky kind of moves away from you, and Clyde is a wild card, just random. Now, Batman isn't just a game you play, it's a crispy corn cereal that's coming your way. It would take 17 months to create Pac-Man, the longest ever for a video game at that point. And on May 22nd, 1980, it was released to arcades in Japan. And it did okay. It wasn't a huge hit. In fact, the Space Invader clone that Namco had been working on was initially much more popular. And if you haven't guessed it by now, the name of that clone was Galaxian. So how did this game, Puck-Man, morph into Pac-Man and become one of the biggest games of all time? Well, first, it had to go to America. The company Midway in the U.S. was looking at Japanese games to bring over that they hoped would be a big hit. And the two games they picked were Galaxian and Puck-Man. When they did bring Puck-Man over, they decided they should change some things. They changed the cabinet. The original Puck-Man cabinet was white, and they changed it to yellow. And they also changed the artwork on it, which had a more white and blue theme to the standard yellow with blue and yellow ghosts on the side and the word Pac-Man. And they did this because they wanted something that would be cheaper to manufacture. Now, the big change was the name, from Puck-Man to Pac-Man. And maybe a lot of you realize why they did this. They were concerned, probably rightfully so, that vandals would come into arcades and change the P to an F, and they just wanted to avoid that sort of hilarious vandalism. Probably the best call they could have made. In October of 1980, Pac-Man, as well as Galaxian, hit American arcades for the first time. Now, Galaxian was a hit, but there was a lot of video games coming out in America that were similar to Space Invaders, and a new game called Defender had just come out as well, and Defender was a huge hit. So Galaxian, while a minor hit, got buried by Defender. Pac-Man comes onto the scene, and it's not like any game anyone had seen before. It's bright, it's colorful, and Iwatani was right. For the first time, women as a demographic found a game that, at least when they were surveyed on it, they kind of liked. Add to that that parents saw Pac-Man and learned that it was basically not violent compared to other video games and certainly not threatening like other games. And they thought, well, I would actually let my kids play this game. 
To say Pac-Man was a hit would be an understatement. It was a phenomenon. In the first year, it sold over 100,000 machines. And one of the things everyone was talking about at the time is how easy it was to play. And it was. It just had a joystick. And you could get through the first level, maybe your first time playing it. But to really master Pac-Man, you either had to be a savant or you had to learn. Hence the easy-to-learn, difficult-to-master tagline that everyone was throwing around about a lot of things. And... Pac-Man as well. By 1982, the number of arcade units sold had jumped to 400,000, and the game was bringing in billions of dollars. Of course, at the time, arcades were not the only place that had Pac-Man. It would make the jump to home gaming. The Atari 2600 version of the game would sell over 8 million copies, making it the console's best-selling title. Besides that, you had Coleco's Tabletop Mini Arcade. That sold 1.5 million units. There was the Nelsonic Game Watch that sold a half a million million units, the Famicom version later on, and then eventually Game Boy, the Atari 5200, Atari computers, tons of ripoffs. Pac-Man was everywhere. In a post I read, it said that by 2016, all versions of Pac-Man are estimated to have grossed a total of $12 billion in revenue. Not bad. Now, reviews of home system releases of Pac-Man were usually pretty negative. The 2600 version, especially, was savaged by a lot of people, talking about its weaker graphics, the lack of the ghosts being like they are in the arcade, and it is a very different game. But despite that, I can tell you at the time, my friends and I played so much Pac-Man on the Atari 2600. And by the time it started to roll around into other systems, we had moved on to other video games. So in my head, when I think of Pac-Man, I either think of the arcade version or the Atari version. That's just the way it is. I feel the same way about Miss Pac-Man, arcade version or the Atari 2600 version. There are much better versions of it. They're still making much better versions of it, but those will always be the two that are in my head and in the hearts of a lot of people at the time. First the Pac-Man eats through a maze of dots Then the Pac-Man heads for the corner spot Then he eats his fill Of a power pill And then all those ghosts turn blue Boo! And Pac-Man eats them all too Have you played Pac-Man? It's the new video computer game everyone's talking about And naturally, it's from Atari Have you played Atari today? The strategy for Pac-Man isn't that difficult to understand, although, as they say, it's difficult to master. At its most basic, what you have to do is know about the behavior of ghosts. The ghosts have three modes of behavior they can use during gameplay. They can chase, they can scatter, and they can be frightened. In chase mode, a ghost is just going after and trying to capture Pac-Man by hunting him down. And they do this using their unique behaviors. Blinky is aggressive. Pinky will try to cut you off and get in front of you. Inky is unpredictable. And Clyde tends to hang out on the opposite side of the maze you're on. And when they're in chase mode, they will use this particular method to get to you. When a ghost goes into scatter mode, they give up the chase for just a few seconds and head for their respective corners. And then finally, there is frighten mode, which which the ghosts will enter whenever Pac-Man eats an Energizer that are located in the corners of the screen. In the early levels of the game, they'll turn darker blue and wander the maze for a few seconds, and you have to go over and chase them and eat them. So that's some of the behavior you need to learn to deal with the ghosts. But the game itself is pretty simple. The scoring is equally simple. The game is a maze with 244 dots. 240 of them are small dots, worth 10 points each. Four of them are Energizer dots, and those are worth 50 points each. Each. 
which means at a very basic level for each maze you can get 2600 points. But there is ways to increase your score, and the most important way is to eat ghosts. So what you have to do is figure out the behavior of the ghosts and kind of round them up. Then eat one of those energizers, and then as you eat the ghosts, each one grows in value. So the first ghost is worth 200, the second 400, third 800, and finally 1600. So if all four ghosts can be captured on each level after each energizer is eaten, you would get an additional 12,000 points for each board. Now this isn't very difficult on the first few levels actually, but later on in the game, for me, it feels impossible. By level 19, the ghosts stop turning blue altogether and cannot be eaten for additional points. Now there is another way to get extra points, and that is by eating what is referred to as bonus symbols, but are more commonly called fruit. The first fruit appears after you have eaten 70 dots, the second one appears after 170 dots are cleared, and each fruit is worth anywhere from 100 to 5,000 points, depending on the level you're on. Now when a fruit appears, it might seem random how long it stays on, but it's usually on screen for somewhere between 9 and 10 seconds. Now I know there are people who know very specifically how long a fruit will stay there, but the average casual player will think it's gone too fast. The first fruit in the game is the cherry, and the last fruit in the game is a symbol. It's a key. That's why it was referred to as symbols, not just fruits. And the key continues starting at level 13, and then it would continue on moving forward. Now, although the game was made to go on forever, it does end eventually in something called a split screen, sort of like the Donkey Kong kill screen. There's a bug in the routine that draws fruit in the game, and once you reach the 256th level, it becomes a garbled mess of text and symbols and renders the game almost impossible to play. The problem is that it's actually the fruit that are drawn on the bottom. Normally, no more than seven fruit can be displayed at one time. When the level counter stored in the game reaches 255, the subroutine causes the value to roll over to zero before drawing the fruit. This causes the routine to attempt to draw 256 fruits, which corrupts the bottom of the screen and the whole right half of the maze with random symbols. Now, some people have modified the game to make this go away, so you can actually play forever, but in the original game, you could not. But I think it's much more interesting because it offers an endgame. It allows you to have a metric by which you can gauge how good you are at the game in a finite way. Now, while other people have tried to do a little bit better with the little bit of a maze that's left, for all intents and purposes, the 256th level of Pac-Man is the Pac-Man kill screen. End of line. The game technical overview. The original arcade game used a Z80A processor at 3.072 MHz with 16 kilobytes of ROM and 3 kilobytes of static RAM. This included 1 kilobyte each for video RAM, color RAM, and general program RAM. The system had two custom chips, the 285 sync bus controller and the 284 video RAM addresser, but often used daughter boards with standard parts instead. The video output was analog component video with composite sync. It also had 8 kilobytes of character ROM for characters, background tiles, and sprites and an extra 1 kilobyte of a static RAM for 4 BPP sprite data for one scan line updated during the horizontal blanking period. Sprites were always 16 by 16 pixels, with one of four colors being transparent. The monitor was rotated 90 degrees clockwise, starting the first scan line at the top right and ending at the bottom right. The horizontal blanking period after the level indicator at the bottom lasted 96 pixel clock ticks, allowing four bytes of sprite data to be fetched every 16 ticks for six sprites. However, sprite 0 and 7 couldn't be used because their pixel fetch times overlapped with other screen elements. Thanks, Wikipedia. End technical overview.
Midway took it upon themselves to start manufacturing their own sequels. There would also be people creating hacks and counterfeit versions of both Pac-Man and its sequels. There's a hack of the original Pac-Man by General Computer Corporation called Crazy Auto, which was sold to Midway without Namco's permission. With a couple of improvements, Crazy Auto was turned into Miss Pac-Man. Miss Pac-Man is an amazing sequel to Pac-Man, and in many, many ways is a much better game. It's got better screens, differences in the maze, the colors. It's just really strong. This created a rift between Midway and Namco, and they went to court. Namco sued Midway for exceeding their license. Eventually, they struck a deal where Namco would officially license Miss Pac-Man as a sequel to Pac-Man. Following Miss Pac-Man, Midway released several unauthorized spin-offs. You'd figure they would learn, but they released Pac-Man Plus, Junior Pac-Man, Baby Pac-Man, and of course, everyone's favorite, Professor Pac-Man. This resulted in Namco severing business relations with Midway. Now, it took a while before a true sequel was made for Pac-Man by Namco. And we're talking a long, long time, 2007, before I would say a real true sequel worthy of the original came out. And that was Pac-Man Championship Edition. And you could play that at the time on the Xbox Live Arcade. Iwatani actually worked on it and created basically a remake of Pac-Man that was really good and was given amazing reviews. Now, what makes Champion Championship edition stand out is that it keeps the core gameplay of Pac-Man, but adds some unique twists. Instead of a single maze, there are multiple mazes with different layouts, and instead of just trying to clear the entire maze, the goal is to meet as many dots and ghosts as possible within a time limit. Pac-Man Championship Edition was a hit, and it helped to revive interest in the character. Since then, there have been other games and spin-offs, including Pac-Man Champion Edition DX, Pac-Man 256, and Pac-Man 99, which is a Battle Royale-style game. Pac-Man would also make appearances in other media, including the Wreck-It Ralph movie franchise. I was really happy to see Pac-Man there. Play to win. interested in being a championship level Pac-Man player, you have to be very good. You have to eat every dot, every energizer, every fruit, every monster without losing a single life. And the person who got a lot of credit for doing this was Billy Mitchell, who got a score of 3,333,360 points in six hours. And he offered a bounty to anyone who could pass through the split screen. And he said that he would give them $100,000 if they did so, which this reward would 
would be unclaimed because nobody could do that. But it gave attention to Billy Mitchell as the score holder. Things get complicated in the world of video game high scores, though. Which, if you're on the outside of that, just seems crazy. Mitchell also had Donkey Kong scores. If you've seen the movie King of Kong, you'll know more about the Billy Mitchell story. According to Twin Galaxies, which was a pretty famous keeper of high scores, Mitchell had played Donkey Kong and submitted high scores on potentially modified original circuit boards. This caused some record-keeping organizations to remove Mitchell's score. Now, other people would achieve perfect scores on original hardware like Mitchell had, and people started to shift to not just the perfect score, but who could do it the fastest. And as of the recording of this, that is held by David Race, who did it in 3 hours, 28 minutes, and 49 seconds. There is a funny story about Ronald Reagan writing a letter to a boy named Jeffrey Yee, congratulating him on getting the world record in Pac-Man. But the score that is cited in the record is 6,131,940 points. Now that wouldn't be possible unless you got past the split screen. And that's never been verified and it's largely considered to be a hoax. But what a great hoax. I started looking online trying to find some of the oldest mentions in articles in newspapers about Pac-Man. And a lot of the earliest records I could find in New Jersey, where I'm from, were mentions of it showing up in arcades. One was for Aladdin's Castle Family Amusement Center, where they would be featuring the following games in June of 1981. And as you'll hear, a lot of them are shooters. Gorf, Astro Blaster, Defender, Space Tactic, Crazy Climber, a little bit of a different game, and finally Pac-Man. Notice you don't hear about Galaxian. There's also mentions of people renting coin-operated games. If you go into the classified section of your papers from back then, there's a lot of people trying to get in on this new business. This one says, The newest video games, Missile Command, Pac-Man, Moon Cresta, Stratovox, Asteroid, and others, available for immediate delivery, cocktail, as well as stand-up arcade models. Finally, from Indiana, I did find something from December of 1980, so way ahead of the curve on coverage of Pac-Man. The Daily Journal and more in Franklin, Indiana, has an article called Video Space Game Overcome Pinballs. And this gets to the whole thing of space games were where it's at. And yet, here on the cover, they have a maze drawn of a new game called Pac-Man. And it's a hand-drawn image, which is amazing. And it says, this is a representation of the screen from a new video game called Pac-Man. One game distributor said that Pac-Man is one of the hottest games on the market. The new generation of video machines will feature maze games where a player must move his man, the opened circle in the center, around the screen, gobbling the dots before any of the ghost-like figures can catch it. So they don't even know what they're talking about here. And yet they're trying to describe it and they've drawn a picture of it that I'll have to share somewhere. It's pretty great. It looks very much like Pac-Man. This person must have really studied it. And there's a little bit of art in the corner, like clip art. And then a bunch of photos showing someone working on a pinball machine, playing a pinball machine, and some people playing asteroids. But this is way ahead of the time. We're seeing December 1980. The game would really take off in 81. And this person's sort of getting the word on the street, or or at least the word in the arcade of what will be hot. And they're also predicting that because space games had been the big thing, the next thing must be maze games. 
Pac-Man would climb out of the arcade pretty quickly. It was a phenomenon. If you turned on the radio in 1981, you might have heard Buckner and Garcia's song Pac-Man Fever, which climbed to nine on the Billboard Hot 100 charts and received a gold certification, selling one million records by 1982, eventually selling 2.5 million copies. The Buckner and Garcia's album that it appears on would also sell over a million copies. In 82, Weird Al Yankovic recorded a parody of Taxman called Pac-Man that was released in 2017. But hearing Pac-Man on the radio was just the start of things. If you were on that boardwalk with me as a kid, you would see merchandise of Pac-Man everywhere. And if you opened your Sears catalog or went to the mall, you would see even more. By 1982, Midway had over 100 licenses selling Pac-Man merchandise, including with some big companies like AT&T selling a Pac-Man phone. According to records, there were at least 500 Pac-Man-related products, and that doesn't even count the counterfeit ones. By 1982, they estimate that Pac-Man-themed merchandise sales had exceeded a billion dollars. And from bumper stickers to jewelry, t-shirts, handheld electronics, and pasta, Pac-Man was everywhere. Oh, Pac-Man, I'm beat! Thank goodness for new Pac-Man pasta from Chef Boyardee. New Pac-Man pasta? Mmm, little spaghetti shaped like us. Delicious. And because Chef Boyardee's packed with goodness, it's great for when we have to eat and run. New Pac-Man pasta from Chef Boyardee. With meatballs, <laughs> without meatballs, <laughs> or chicken flavor. <laughs> Thank goodness for new Pac-Man pasta. Thank goodness for Chef Boyardee. <laughs> Now, if you were watching TV and hearing that Pac-Man pasta commercial, you might have been watching the Pac-Man animated television series, which was produced by Hanna-Barbera, and it aired on ABC in 1982 and 1983. It was a huge hit in late 82, and it caused a lot of other companies to run to try to make video game-related cartoons at the time. My friends and I really loved Pac-Man enough that we got the Pac-Man board game to play, which maybe not the best game, but boy, the Pac-Man pieces are a lot of fun. We also collected the Pac-Man stickers. These were great. They were made by Fleer. They also had the rub-off card games that were included in it. Those were amazing. I never finished my collection, sadly. If only my friends and I would have combined. But we were also competitive with one another. Pac-Man continues to influence and be creative. The sounds and concepts of Pac-Man would appear in music, television, and even literature. The original Pac-Man plays a role in Ernest Cline's novel Ready Player One. As I mentioned, he's in Wreck-It Ralph. There's a movie called Pixels. Plus the love of nostalgia culture and the 80s revival that's happened in the last 10 years has shown Pac-Man machines showing up in cameos in television and movies. And yet, here we are in a world where we're really not getting enough Pac-Man video games. We see from Iwatani's work that the concept is still very viable. You can make maze games that are exciting and fun. And the character of Pac-Man has a lot of potential. This is an iconic and enduring video game that has had a lasting impact on both pop culture and the gaming industry. It was born from the creative mind of Toru Iwatani, who thoughtfully had the foresight to consider making a game that would appeal to a wider audience. And he established a simple yet challenging game paradigm that had memorable characters that would be very influential on everything that would follow. It was a cultural phenomenon in its day and still remains a beloved classic to this day.
thanks for everyone for listening to the show. This is a revisiting of Pac-Man, a podcast that I did many, many years ago and wanted to revisit. And I tried to capture a lot of the original material that I used in that podcast and maybe grow it just a bit. So if you have listened to the original, you'll probably have heard some of this before, but hopefully this expands on it enough for people to enjoy this brand new version with newer technology, newer recording, newer microphone. And I plan on doing more of these in the future. For more retro fun, make sure to drop by the website at retroist.com. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you like what you hear, you should follow Peachy on Twitter and Twitch. He's at PeachyPixelate. That's the word Peachy, the word Pixel, and the number eight. You can follow The Retroist on social media. I'm at all the major social medias at Retroist. If you'd like to support the show, you could do so by giving the show a five-star review wherever you downloaded the show. It's really those five-star reviews that help people find the show. So if you could take the time to do that, it would be very much appreciated. If you'd like to support the show further, The Retroist is on Patreon. For just a couple of bucks a month, you support the show. You also get bonus tracks, bonus episodes, bonus scans, and access to The Retroist Discord, the coolest retro community on the internet. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. Waka waka wa chomp. This has been a Retroist production. Goodbye.